And now, live from Level 5 Productions on the island of Milleronia, it's The Larry Miller Show! Good evening, Mr. and Mrs. America, and everyone who loves a brand new car. Hi, folks, and uh, welcome back to The Larry Miller Show. I'm Larry Miller, but in a way, aren't we all? And you know something? It's a gorgeous day, but not on Milleronia today. It's gorgeous. Back on the mainland, and I am in Southern California at uh, my, well... My stately manner, and uh, there's a reason for that, and I'll tell you soon. But boy, first of all, it is a gorgeous day here, and that music and that band always get me going. And I know the same for you, Colonel Jeff, and uh, they make us both smile and bounce our heads. Everything does come to think of it, but you know what? This is the only place it looks normal. But terrific. That's, of course, the Lloyd Woodall Orchestra and the Christine Nygaard Dancers, featuring boy tenor Rick Buckaloo, asking the musical question, If the autumn leaves caress the trees tenderly, how come I'm sweeping the driveway every other day? Good question, Rick. Heck of a question. But you know what? I'm sorry to have to be the one to tell you this, but I think maybe... Your autumn leaves don't caress the trees tenderly. That might be the reason. I have a feeling your autumn leaves get blown into the street by the gardener and bagged by the neighbor's kids. And there's nothing wrong with that for the neighbor's kids or the gardener. But, yeah, I I don't think your autumn leaves... The beautiful song, that tenderly, by the way. The autumn leaves caress the trees tenderly. That was, uh, I think, if they had heard that as an audition to do the song, they would have cut it off before the word tenderly and just said, yeah, no, I don't think this guy is the one. We need we need someone named Sergio or Enrico to do this. Uh, in any case, good question, Rick. But yeah, autumn leaves don't caress the trees tenderly everywhere. And by Amazon, PayPal, and my book. I'm so proud of these companies as sponsors for us. Amazon is still the greatest company in the world to me because they do three things no one else can do. One, you can order anything you want from them. You order it, and they'll get it to you. That's number one. Number two, they already have it. That's the amazing thing. They don't even have to make it. They don't have to send for it themselves. You order it. And they've got it. They've got a gigantic warehouse with a lot of those government things still in it, like Indiana Jones, and they they still have, uh, oh, well, things that, you know, God made and Moses made long time ago. But boy, oh, boy, they'll get it to you. And they they already have it. And three, the main thing is whatever you order, whatever you get into your mind's eye to get from them, they send us a percentage of it. That's right, here to the show, to the Larry Miller Show. They send me and Colonel Jeff a percent of every, more than one percent, they send us a percentage of everything you order. 
And that money, of course, immediately goes into our box, our locked box, and we save it for the next big fancy fried chicken dinner with two drinks beforehand in a different place. And yes, as you know, if you're listening carefully, and what other way would you listen? But we, uh, last time we went to our second annual big fancy fried chicken dinner with two drinks beforehand in a different place, and we did, after careful thought, we did invite Dr. Chris to come with us. Those of you who are fans and listen regularly will know that Dr. Chris is, well, he's taking clog dancing lessons at the University of Solvang, which is just outside Santa Barbara. Well, not just outside. I think it's about 10, 20 miles north of Santa Barbara. But he's, oh, he's studying very hard, and he's going to be, you know what, he's going to be a heck of a clog dancer. That's all I can say. We have liked him a lot in the past. He was our he was our sound engineer. He is Dr. Chris. And the next time we go on a big fancy fried chicken dinner with two drinks beforehand in a different place, we might, 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 may invite him again. We will again have a big planning session about it. Colonel Jeff and I will pour over that big battle map, just like all the World War II pictures when they push around tanks and troops with the big croupiers stick. But you know what? He's a good guy. He'd love it. Whoa. He he loved it, and we all did. We went to Roscoe's House of Chicken and Waffles last time, as I've told you. And if you want to get to Amazon, and of course you do, don't go there on your own. Don't turn your computer on. Don't open any kind of laptop. Don't turn your iPhone on. Don't, don't do anything like that. What you do is you come to our website, LarryMillerPodcast.com. Who's on the mountain? Tom Mix. <laughs> Gee, that, that poor fellow, that poor band leader hasn't stopped eating that spicy fish that early in the day. <laughs> I don't know his name, but I know what he shouldn't have eaten. In any case, you know what? Go to our website and uh, at LarryMillerPodcast.com, and we have a banner that says Amazon. Click that banner, and we'll get you there. And that's a very strict policy we have. Colonel Jeff and I see the red light go off on our phones, just like the In Like Flint movie. That red light starts blinking, could be in the middle of the night, but we get right up and we will go to the studio, and whether we're on Milleronia or, like now, on the mainland, we will get together at another studio that is in a secret place. Well, it's not so secret, it's my house, but it's kind of secret if you don't know where it is, and uh, we will get you to Amazon. You go and click our banner that says Amazon on our website, and you go to sleep. Get in your, get in your big lazy boy chair, put a magazine over your face, and uh, turn on some old music. Maybe the song like Tenderly, in fact. And we'll get you there. We'll get you to Amazon. And by PayPal. Another one of my favorite groups. Boy, these folks make you feel like you're saving the world. When you work with PayPal... And maybe you are. Maybe you are saving the world. And so, by the way, if you enjoy my show here, The Larry Miller Show, and why wouldn't you? And you'd like to send us a few bucks to help out, and why wouldn't you? 
you can do it through PayPal. So do that. We have another banner on our website that says PayPal. And remember, that's LarryMillerPodcast.com. Who's on the mountain? Tom Mix. <laughs> I think I think that one is starting to get to the point <laughs> with me. Nothing wrong with that. It's been there a while, and I love it still. But but that one made me kind of <laughs> ooh that poor fella. Uh, in any case, uh, yeah, you know what? You can help us here and send us a couple of bucks. But instead of saying donate, I don't like those phrases. Or pay what you like, or join the Platinum Club. I you know I like to say buy us some drinks. That's right. Be me and the Colonel need some drinks, and we would like you to buy them because they they come on different levels. The drinks that we have level one through five, all the way up to we're driving to Florida. <laughs> that makes me laugh. All right, so look for the PayPal banner on our website. And look for the Amazon banner on our website at LarryMillerPodcast.com. <clears throat> Pardon me. And uh, after all, every little bit helps us keep the old leg lamp lit. And thanks to everyone who has contributed already. It's much appreciated here. And thank you in advance to those of you who are just itching to get there and contribute now. And by me and my book. That's right. Signed hardcover copies of my book, Spoiled Rotten America, are now for sale at store.comedyfilmnerds.com. And I'm very proud of the book. It did really well when it was published, and I'm very proud of that. And I tried very hard, made it as funny as it can be, and I think you really like it. So, uh, so get a copy of that and enjoy it, too. And so, you know what? That brings me to my favorite part of the show, the joke of the week. <laughs> that first timpani did it for me. Then, I used to get to do that. I was a percussionist in high school and junior high as well. I was a cellist also in the orchestra, but I was a percussionist in the band. And I sang in the chorus. And, uh, boy, what a day that was. But you know something? Uh, it, it really is something I enjoyed very, very much. And uh, you just can't... I remember that hitting timpani. I, w I was the timpani player, among other things, as a percussionist. As you can tell, I love saying that word. And uh, you could do that. They had a pedal on them. You can change... A, a, a timpani drum is the only drum that has pitch to it. It's the only drum that has a note. All other drums, like a bass drum, snare drum, any kind of drum, just has the sound, the, the percussive sound. But timpani has that bong. You know, it, it's really good. They're wonderful, wonderful instruments. And you can do it with, the, with that pedal there. You can bow. That's how you do it. And uh, there's, you know, a, boy, I'll tell you, a joke of the week, a great joke, there's nothing better than that. To pass one along to a family member or someone you like, a good pal. And uh, both the colonel and I agree this is a good joke. Of course, the colonel called it a good dumb joke. And I laughed when he said that because that's a great 
description. That's a nice characteristic. It's a good dumb joke. And here it is. I hope you like it. A middle-aged man is applying for a job in the heart of the big city, and he has a job interview there, and he's in front of a couple of people who are, well, they're, they're looking for personnel, and they're hiring or not hiring. And they have an interview, and they speak to this guy for about 30 minutes, and they're very impressed, and one of them has to say, you know, at the end of their interview, he has to say, uh, boy, I'll tell you, Mr. Tucker, you're, you're a very impressive candidate for this job. I, I, I must tell you, and I think my partner agrees with me, that, uh, well, you, you have good schooling, you have, uh, you're wonderful to talk to, you speak well, and, uh, oh boy, oh boy, what a resume you have. You have some terrific things you've done, great programs and companies you've worked for, and, uh, I have to be honest, you know what, we're going to give it to you. We've never done this, but just because of the interview and because of you, guess what? It's, it's yours. You, you, you can now join the company, but I'm just curious. I notice on your resume that the last five years are blank, that you, you don't have anything written down for that. And, uh, Tucker looks at them and says, uh, well, I went to Yale. And they're very improved. Yeah, well, that's even better. You know what? That's, I'm, I'm telling you, you start tomorrow. This is yours. And uh, Tucker stands up and raises his hands and smiles and screams, Oh, boy, I got a yob. <laughs> I, I left a little extra space there at the end of that one. Because it took me, when Colonel Jeff told it to me, it took me about six seconds to put that one together. <laughs> well, I went to Yale. Oh, very impressive. Oh, boy, I got a yob. <laughs> so, I hope you like that one, folks. And uh, please pass it on and tell it to a friend if you do. And that brings us to my second favorite part of the show, The Poetry Corner. Boy, it just dawned on me that the guy with the cough could be one of the guys in that string quartet. He may not be in the audience. It could be the viola player. I think the, think the viola is a great instrument, by the way, and it, it doesn't get the respect it should, I believe. But it's beautiful, and it's a little larger than a violin. But boy, a good viola player is as great as any member in the orchestra there. But this is a terrific poem, folks. I hope you like it. It's written by the great Emma Lazarus. And you know her work from many, many places and I assume you know her name that way, too. She was born in New York in Brooklyn in 1849 and died in 1887. So not a long life for poor Emma, but what a great mind and creative soul she was. And this poem was written in 1883 as a donation from her to an auction to raise money for the construction of the pedestal 
for the Statue of Liberty. And that was a great time to live in so many ways after the Civil War, the level of construction and of industry and of theater and of all forms was so strong. And, well, the Statue of Liberty is, you know what, folks? It needs to be remembered and looked at again and really enjoyed because it's it's far greater than we give it credit for. Uh, it was built by Gustave Eiffel in France, and you may recognize that last name because he was also the same guy who designed and built the Eiffel Tower or the Eiffel Tower. And, well, you know, it took years, in fact, decades for him and all the people who wanted to do this to put it together. And here, as I just told you, Emma Lazarus donated this sonnet to help raise funds for the construction of the pedestal. And, well, it was done in, in pieces. The arm and the torch came here first and were displayed in Philadelphia. These are big things. The head was on display at the 1878 Paris World's Fair. It took a long time to raise the money and make all the plans. And Emma, God bless her, is buried in Brooklyn. And this sonnet was, in fact, put on the base of the Statue of Liberty in 1903, after she passed on. And I think part of this poem will be recognizable by all of you. It's called The New Colossus by Emma Lazarus. Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land, here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch whose flame is the imprisoned lightning and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame. Keep, ancient lands, your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed, to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Well, I think that qualifies as a beautiful poem. And those last few lines there are on the base of our Statue of Liberty since 1903. Emma had already passed on to the next place to write her poetry. But let's just listen to that again. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed, to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. And you know what? As you do know, folks, 
There is nothing more beautiful than a great scene in so many movies of the new immigrants and people who have been sitting in the, well, deep in the hull of that ship for weeks to come out onto the deck and we see in their faces. I'm thinking of the one from, I think, Godfather 2, also when it shows the little boy coming to America and all the people we see in their faces first as the ship goes by, as they've gotten to America, we see their faces very well shot and well acted by all those folks. They don't overreact, but they're moved by it. And then we see what they're looking at, the Statue of Liberty. It meant so much to them, and it meant so much to all our relatives coming here to America, to mine and to Colonel Jeff's, and to yours as well. So you know what? It's a good thought there. She was and still is the new Colossus. And go see the Statue of Liberty. And by the way, if you're looking to see a Statue of Liberty, if you live in New York or if you have in the past, I've done this for years, many, many years. Not only when I lived in New York, but finally someone pointed it out to me. And someone said to me on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, Hey, have you seen the uh, Statue of Liberty? And I said, what do you mean? Of course I have as a Cub Scout and with my family and many times went to Liberty Island and as an adult too. And he said, no, no, I mean the other Statue of Liberty. And I said, I don't think I know what you mean. But there was another one. He said, he pointed up and he said, there it is. And it was at the corner of Broadway and 64th Street on the Upper West Side of New York atop a building called the Liberty Warehouse. A man named William Flateau, the owner of the Liberty Warehouse in 1891, was a French immig immigrant, and he was French, where the Statue of Liberty was designed and made. And he wanted a replica of it to adorn his building that he called the Liberty Warehouse. And he found a model a model of it that Frederick Bartholdi, the man who designed it, made the smaller one. It was 30 feet high, and Bartholdi had used it to excite people to help raise money for the big one. And when my friend pointed up, just straight up, he said, there it is. And folks, on top of the Liberty Warehouse, it's not a giant building either. It's just a regular-sized, oh, six or seven-story or something like that, and I had never known it was there. The Statue of Liberty, the 30-foot one that William Flateau wanted, he put on top of the Liberty Warehouse, and I thought, I looked up, and there it was, and I thought, well, how do you like that? I never saw it. I never knew, but there it is, and it is the exact Statue of Liberty but the one he made as a model, 30 feet tall. And right on top of the building, in perfect view, easy view, right out in the open. And I thought, well, that's just beautiful. How do you like that? And you know what? I'm glad Mr. Flateau did that. And by the way, if you wanted to see it now, at a certain point, one of his descendants or the people who owned the building, in 2002... They took the statue down from the building on the Upper West Side because they were redoing the building. And they were making it stronger and better. 
And they sent the statue to the Brooklyn Museum. That's right, a museum in Brooklyn called the Brooklyn Museum at 200 Eastern Parkway in Brooklyn. And it is there now in the parking lot of the Brooklyn Museum. And it's still, <laughs> it's really something to see. It's It sounds a little, a little knuckleheaded, I mean, that it's in a parking lot, but there's a picture of it. In fact, we're going to try to get it. Colonel Jeff is going to try to get it on our website. And uh, both pictures, the one on top of the building, which was very moving. It was elegant and, and, and gorgeous. And you know what? I think that's what it means to be an American, like you and like me, that I saw the one just uh, just now in the parking lot at the Brooklyn Museum, and I liked that one too. It was just as good in the parking lot. A little silly, but you know what? Just as beautiful, because that's what we all are too. We're all a little silly, and we are all beautiful just the same way. Take a look at it sometime. And uh, that brings me to my third favorite part of the show. MMM, the magic movie moment. Oh, boy, folks. I, lo I love this. I love doing the show anyway. But a magic movie moment, a part of a movie you already love, or maybe you haven't even seen yet, but a part of a movie you just love and look forward to every time you see it. And that's what creates the kind of magic we all like so much in movies. And this is from The Great West Side Story from 1961, starring Natalie Wood, Richard Beamer, Russ Tamblin, George Shakiris, Rita Moreno, Simon Oakland, oh, and many others. What a great cast. And also, by the way, You'll recognize a lot of people in it, but it's interesting that this was made, and the music by Leonard Bernstein, and, oh, direction. Oh, I'll have to look that up. I forgot the uh, the director's name. I'd have to look, at it, look it up on, the, uh, on uh, where I opened it up on the Internet, but what a great movie. It's based on Romeo and Juliet, and it's just thrilling, and it's a story that never ends. It's a great love story. And that may sound, well, like old hat to you, but it's not. A great love story that's really well made is like the first love story ever made. And that's the truth about, well, a song too, a love song. If someone writes a great love song for just him and the guitar, you know what? It's as beautiful. If it's a great song, it's as beautiful as anything that's ever been written. And this one, West Side Story. <laughs> Folks, nothing moves me more. And that music is so great. And Natalie Wood as Maria and Richard Bamer as Tony. I can't, I never know whether this is that Bamer or Beamer. It's capital B and E-Y-M-E-R. Russ Tamblin as Riff, the leader of the Jets. And George Shakiris as Maria's brother, Bernardo, who's the leader of the Sharks. And the great Rita Moreno. Oh, she's done so many things. My wife, in fact, wrote a pilot for her that was made for TV. 
and she got to know her well, and, uh, and well, it's just a thrill to meet someone like that. Simon Oakland, you know from a thousand movies and a thousand TV shows. He plays Lieutenant Shrank, and uh, he, he's a tough guy. He's not the nicest guy on the police force there at all. It's a terrific movie, folks. It's it's wonderful. And the magic movie moment today for me, after they do all the running around, after they meet for the first time, Tony and Maria in the dance hall where Riff and Bernardo are going to challenge each other to a big fight, a big rumble, to see who's going to run the neighborhood. And uh, they meet, and those looks in their eyes, everything else just kind of blends out, and we see that things just almost get a little fuzzy and disappear. But Tony and Maria find each other, and oh, that's a great moment. It's a great love moment. Well, I suppose they're young. They're 18, 17, but it's an eternal love moment. And the magic movie moment for me is the last scene in the movie. And they've, the, well, it's like Romeo and Juliet that that uh, Tony heard that Maria had been killed by Chino, the other boy in the gang who really cared about her, the one that Bernardo wanted her to marry. And, well, Anita gets so mad, she goes to Doc's uh, candy store there the hangout of the Jets, to warn them that Chino has a gun and he's looking for Tony. And it's, oh, it's a very rugged scene. And the Jets grab her and, they, and they're, well, they're about to rape her. And the police come in and break that up. And it's a, it's a wonderful movie. And she gets so mad at the moment in, in the movie there that Anita says to them that, that Chino killed Maria, she's making this up, but she's so angry at them, and that he's looking for Tony. He's going to kill all of all. Tony's going to kill you, going to kill everyone. And you know what, folks? Tony hears about this, and he goes running through the streets, calling for Maria. He can't believe she's dead. He he's so hopeful, and he's calling her name, Maria, Maria. And he runs into the schoolyard there, and it's nighttime. It's around 10 or 11 at night, and he runs into the schoolyard, and sure enough, he sees her. She's not dead, and she sees him from opposite ends of the schoolyard. They're both just thrilled, and they run to each other in so much love, the height of all that love and happiness. And also there, though, Chino appears, and he does have a gun, and he shoots Tony. And Tony drops, and Maria runs over to him and catches him, and they have just enough time together to be together and to think again about that gorgeous song they sang before in the earlier part of the movie of Somewhere. There's a place for us, a time and place for us. Hold my hand and I'll take you there. Hold my hand and we're halfway there somewhere it's gorgeous not as gorgeous as the way i sang it of course but you know what folks they sing together and he's dying and then 
he does die in her arms, and she, crying, she bends over and kisses him and says, Teodoro, Anton. And, well, you don't have to know a lot of Spanish to know what that means. And she stands up and she looks at Chino, and at this point, the two gangs arrive also. The Jets and the Sharks arrive in the schoolyard, and they're moving toward each other. They're going to have another fight. They're going to continue the rumble, but it's going to be a death match this time. And they're just so violently mad at each other. And Maria saves the day. She screams, stop, what are you doing? And she goes over to Chino and she says, give me that, give me the gun. She threatens them all with the gun. And it's a gorgeous scene. And they calm down and they see, and we see that she's right. And she says, now they have to carry Tony away. And the police come. We see the cars pull up with their, with the with the red lights twirling, what they used to call a bubblegum machine on top of the police cars. And they take Chino and they handcuff him and they drag him away. And they, uh, well, he's very sad. And then the jets pick up Tony. He's dead. And one of his hands falls out from where they were holding him. And one of the sharks runs over and catches the hands and they look at each other, the jets and the sharks. Do they kill each other? No, they know this is more important. And together, Tony is borne off by the jets and the sharks and Maria follows him. And you know what, folks? It's beautifully shot. It's beautifully made. If you haven't seen West Side Story, See it. Find it. See it. It's something to be seen many times. If you have seen it many times, see it again and know how great it is. And just going through the synopsis before, just thinking of the story again and hearing about it again, and just telling it to you now, has brought tears to my eyes because it's that beautiful. And it should bring them to yours too. And that's, boy, there are many magic movie moments, and I love talking about them, but that's that's one that really matters. West Side Story, 1961. Get it, see it, and see what it does to your eyes. And, you know, there are so many things to be happy about. We're so lucky, you and I. Good Lord. We're not, we're not starving. We're not living. In slums like that, we're not, well, at at war with another gang. We're lucky enough to be happy by other things. For instance, my wife got a new car this morning. That's right, and she was going to work, but the car was brought over. It was delivered here to our house by Mark, the guy he leases cars. And we've worked with him on other cars. And he knows everything about cars. And, well, it's a different way of doing business. I I miss going to a car dealer and getting to drive a car off the lot. And down that driveway, underneath the the colored pinwheels that are red and blue and yellow and green as they spin in the air, 
I miss that a lot. But you know what? This guy, Mark, is terrific. And uh, he brought over Eileen's new car. Uh, we got our last cars from him three years ago. And he's very skilled. He's very knowledgeable about this. He he got them for us in the same way, in another, and uh, just within a day or two of each other. And he brought it over today. And, you know, it's still very exciting. I don't care, well, what your life is like or how many things you have or don't have, but there's still nothing like being able to say, oh, we're getting a new car. It's so cool to get a new car. And, well, my wife deserves to be that happy. She was very glad she got up extra early today. He was coming by at 8 o'clock, and... I took our younger son, I made breakfast, the great way I always do, and then I took him to school, and I came back, it was just a few minutes before Mike got here, Mark rather, got here, I should know his name, he's bringing us cars, but before he got here with Eileen's new car, it's an SUV, which she wanted, it's a Mercedes SUV, and it's uh, one of the less expensive ones, it's... uh, it's kind of a like regular car price. And this car, she loves it. It's gray, silver, with a black interior. And, well, Mark got in the car with her there in the front seat, and she put the school stickers and her studio stickers on the windshield, took it off the other car. And, well, she didn't like that car, the one that we just had, but that's okay. And she likes this one. And it was so much fun to watch her smiling. Ooh, we're getting a new car. And by the way, after this show, the reason I'm not on Milleronia now, the reason Colonel Jeff is not on Milleronia, the reason that we're both sitting in my house with my dog Ozzy here in the studio and doing the show is that after the show, I have to go look at another couple of cars myself. Now, I've already looked at I've gone to a Ford dealer. I looked at, well, Ford's. There's a big one uh, near us here, Galpin Ford. And, uh, well, I've done business with them before. And I was looking again at a Lincoln and at a Jaguar. They have all these things there. At a Volvo. And then I went to another dealer and looked at Lexus and Audi and uh, Cadillac. And so they were all nice cars. I mean, these are all good cars. You know that. You know, you could get any one of those cars and, well, you'd like it. I mean, you'd be okay. Uh, But, well, you, you may not be crazy about the Lexus or you may not be crazy about something else. And by the way, they're not cheap. You know this already, but they're not cheap, okay? There's a new Cadillac coming out and they said, oh, in another couple of weeks, we'll have this brand new model. I can't remember what the lettering is on it. I wish they still had names. Maybe you do, too. I wish, you know, we used to have names like, as well, Impala, Cougar, you know. Oh, boy, LeSabre. We used to have names. that were, Now they're all double XB. And uh, at any rate, I'm going to look at a couple today because I have to order a car from Mark today. The lease on my car ended yesterday. And, well, we're lucky because we have a bunch of car dealers on Van Nuys Boulevard, and I can drive over there, 
and I can look at a few more cars and just call Mark up and say, all right, let's get this thing. And uh, I wish I had a brochure for when I visited these places. I miss brochures for cars. Why don't any of them have brochures anymore? Now, I, I really want to know why, and I've, I've asked them there at the dealerships. I want a brochure. To, they, they, they always say the same thing, that, well, now we have it on the Internet. You can go on the Internet. And I said, I know that. Everything's on the Internet. You're on the Internet. And uh, But I don't want to be on the Internet. I want a brochure to look at later in bed so I could be sitting there with my slippers on and my big fancy Brooks Brothers pajamas and I can be, you know, in the bed there. My wife can be next to me knitting. Well, she wouldn't be doing that, but she could. and Or watching something on TV, and I'm showing her pictures of a Buick. I'd like to do that in a brochure, but they don't have any more. I miss those. I miss Oldsmobiles and Pontiacs and DeSotos and Edsels. I, I, I'd love to have seen those cars. I'd love to have gotten an Oldsmobile or a Pontiac. Well, they're not alive anymore. I'd love to see. Can you imagine driving a Packard? I mean, I'm not a big car guy where you have your own garage and you know how to make one of these and take it apart. Well, I'm not. So uh, we really used to make great cars. And you know what? In the old days as well, you didn't have to go sit in the car. You didn't have to do what I'm going to do today, which is, well, as, as Mark said, you know, my, you might as well put your butt in the thing. I'm going to go over. There's a, a Toyota Avalon, he said, to look at. And uh, But you didn't used to have to do that because if you were thinking of a Cadillac in 1960, you didn't know have to go sit in the Cadillac. You already knew you were going to like it. You already knew that in 1950 and 1970. It was starting to go downhill there a bit. They weren't that wonderful. But the older ones really were. And whew, new cars... I remember the first car my parents got, and it was a first car because they were New York City kids. And they were from both from Brooklyn. And no one, I, I met many people from Brooklyn, Manhattan, Queens, every, every place in New York don't have licenses. They don't get driver's licenses. No one gets a driver's license in New York. Does that sound idiotic to you? Well, it may be idiotic, but there's no need for them to have a car. Everyone takes the subways and the buses, and those are terrific. So they don't have cars, and they don't have licenses. And you know what? My parents never had, you know, by the way, it doesn't mean they don't drive. They don't have a license. But they, sure, they have to drive. You could say to someone in New York, well, you, you know, you're you still driving? You don't have a license? Well, I got some place to go. Why shouldn't I drive? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you like to get a license? A what? What's wrong with this guy? A license? No. And... uh my dad was a lawyer, and he, he had an old friend of his that he used to defend when he got into trouble. And his name was Irwin, and Irwin had, as Jimmy, well, as Jimmy Breslin used to say, oh, the great Jimmy Breslin, he used to say that there are some folks uh, who, have, who are smart and who are wise and who are fun to be with, but one whole side of their brain is stamped with larceny. And they're just, well, they're, they're crooks. They're criminals. And uh, so my dad used to defend Irwin whenever he got in trouble, which was often. And Irwin used to get my dad 
cars. They were always used cars. And he'd say to my dad, he said, oh, Milton, you're going to love this one. This one is a good one I got you. And we didn't mind, you know, but they were always so different. We had, through the 50s and 60s, we had a Chrysler. It was like a big boat. We had, uh, let's see, oh, we had a Simca, Simca, which is a French small car, but very small. And uh, so my dad would drove that too for a couple of years until the thing just de-Simca'd itself. And, and I remember it had uh, two horns in the Simca. And every time my dad drove me around in it, and uh, sometimes I used to go into his office in Brooklyn, and uh, he used to say, you know, it's got two horns, one for the city and one for the country. And I, I was ta- I was proud that my dad was happy with it, but the, the, the two horns sounded exactly the same to me. He, it was done with a toggle switch, and you you clicked it one way, and the horn was, ha, ha. And then you click it the other way, and it was, ha, ha. And it was, it was slightly different in pitch, but same horn, same thing. I don't know who in the country or who in the city was going to throw you out for having the wrong horn. In any case, we had a great car from Irwin once. We had, he got us a 64. And by the way, these were all things, you know, my parents had to pay for. These weren't gifts. But uh, that's the way Irwin was. One time he was being sentenced in court and was going to go to jail. And my dad was in the court, and they keep the uh, they, they keep the prisoners, as you probably know, off you know outside one of the doors in the court on the side there, and they're in a holding cell, a bunch of them, and they said the judge called Irwin for the case. He doesn't come out. He doesn't come out. The you know the bailiff is going to bring him out, or one of the guards. Nobody, nobody comes out. And the judge said to my dad, Mister Miller, would you please go get your client. But he said, yeah, sure. So he goes out, walks out that door on the side there behind the jury box, and he goes over, he looks in the holding tank, and the other guards just shrugged at him. They didn't know what to say. Erwin was running a crap game inside the cell with the other crooks, and it was a full crap game with cash and dice. And they're playing. Then my dad walked over and looked through the bars and said, are you out of your mind? You're being sentenced now. You have to come into the court. That's the way the guy was. He held his finger up and he just said to one minute, you know, he just said, uh, yeah, I just need another minute here, Milty. You know, like, I just want to say the game's going well. The game's going well. Get up. Get out. <laughs> Are you out of your mind? And uh, so Erwin, this one car, <laughs> he got us a 64 Plymouth Fury 3. Four-door sedan, that means with a post in the middle, and it was white with red interior, red leathery, leather, leatherette interior, and it was a good car. We really liked it. For the first time, the whole family really liked it, and it was larger than, well, it was bigger than a Simca, but I mean, it was larger than most of the things we got from Irwin, and well, you know what? My dad liked driving it, and my mom liked it too, and we sat in the back, and we we really liked the car. And there was one tiny problem. It's, it smelled, it smelled, and, well, it smelled a lot. I mean, it didn't, it, not all the time. It was Sometimes you could deal with it, but we thought, 
holy mackerel, what, what in the world? This thing stinks. And the smell would get worse in the wintertime, you know. A couple of months later, that you know, when you had closed the windows to keep out the cold, really smelled. So, you know, we'd we'd be put we'd put things that my mom had baked in, you know, into the trunk and then we'd go to Brooklyn to to see her parents and we we loved that. That was in in Flatbush in Brooklyn. And uh so we said, you know, after about 2 3 4 months, well the smell was bad. It's getting and we didn't know what it was. No one knew, had the slightest idea. It didn't smell like it didn't smell like anything we knew or anything anyone had ever smelled. And just, and finally, my mom said to my dad, "You know what? Call your friend Erwin up there and find out what in the world we can do about this." And and you know, my dad and he called him up, and Erwin says, "Ah, oh, Milty, good. I'm glad you called. Good to say, how's the car going? How's that? How's how you doing with that car?" And my dad said, "Well, that's you know, I'm glad you asked because that's also why I'm calling because." There's, yeah, how do you like it? You like it a lot. You, you know, no, we like it fine. We like, uh, yeah, we like it a lot. And uh, but there's a smell. We, we, it, it's, it's the craziest thing, and it's, it's not a good smell. And I, I need to know what I can do to, well, erase it, to eradicate it, to you know, to cover it up. At least do something. And Erwin says to him, "But the car's good, huh? You like that car? Well, yes, I do. I like." And now they talk around each other for about five minutes. And finally, Erwin says, well, what is it? You know, what What are you talking about? Well, the smell. Erwin, the smell, it's just, it's a terrible, terrible smell. And I have no idea what it is. And finally, Erwin says, Melton, you can't have a body in the trunk underneath the East River on the bottom of the river for two years and not have it smell like something. And he says that, and there's a pause. My dad says what you or I would say, which is, what? Well, yeah, I, I'm saying you can't have a body in the trunk under the river for two years and not have it smell bad. That's where you get the smell like that. My dad said, there was a body in the trunk of the car that you gave us? And Herman says, hey, don't worry, it was no one you knew. And <laughs> it was no one I knew. <laughs> my dad said, what, what, "What in the world? Oh my God!" And it was at the bottom. And it turns out, how in the world did you? And Owen said, "Well, he got into trouble with something with the police, and he said to the police, i 'I'll make you a deal. You know, you let me go on this one. You let me slide on this, and uh, I'll tell you who, uh, where Joey Boots is, or one of those <laughs> names. You know." And uh, the police really wanted to know, so they made that deal. And Irwin told him, how did he know? How the heck knows? How do you think he knew? And uh, he goes, so he got off, and they took the car out of the East River. And it was. It was at the bottom of the East River for two years. By the way, no holes in it. There were no, nothing had burned through because of the water. But there was, well, a body in the trunk. And they, you know, washed it off. They let Irwin have the car <laughs> afterwards. And so he washed it out. What does wash it out mean? Who knows? They hosed it out. And then he th sent it through a car wash and gave it to us. <laughs> and by that night, my mom said to my dad, so did you, did you talk to your friend today about the car and the smell? And my dad 
told her. He said, sure I did. And he told her what it was. She said, a body in the, oh, my God, a body. And my dad said to her, don't worry, it was no one we knew. <laughs> I don't even know. He didn't know what that meant. No one knows what it meant. But that's the kind of thing you should say to someone to calm them down. My mother said, oh, God, what are we what are we going to do? You didn't. You need another car. You're not going to take another car from Irwin, are you? We can't. I think we've hit the end with him. I think we've hit the wall. My dad says, no, I think we're done with that. And that's when we got our first car, the first new car from a dealer. It was a Chevy Impala. And that's when that was the first time my parents were the sweetest people in the world. And God bless them. Good people, start to finish. But that was when they decided, I don't think going the used car route with Erwin is something we ought to do again. You know, they, the next one would be, the whole team was in the trunk? Yes. You know, so believe me, New York kids don't get licenses. My mom had to learn to drive on Long Island. We got some some crazy used cars from his old friend, and uh, boy, oh boy. And still, today, my wife got a new one, and I'm going to go out and look for a couple of new ones, and I'll order something, and you know the drill, folks. You know, I, oh boy, I remember when I got my first license, and you remember when you got yours, and I'll tell you what, folks, it's it's very meaningful. You know that, and I know that. And we both know the same things anyway. Homer is Homer. Pluto is a planet. And remember, as always, if you walked out of bed today and had a job to go to and a home to come back to and someone there who cares about you, folks, the game's over and you've won. And that's the truest thing I know. And don't get a car with anyone in the trunk. We'll see you here next time. <laughs>